0: warm welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. Glad we're together today. It's always nice to be together, isn't it? Just to be keeping each other company and to be growing in the Word and to uh, finding out uh, what God has next in our lives because we're always wondering. I'm I'm looking at uh, the passage out of Ephesians today that just uh, says, "...for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus..." And your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I've, I've been doing that a lot lately. I've been remembering you in my prayers, and I've not stopped giving thanks, because Faith Radio is the family that I love, and I love uh, being with my family, and I love the time that we have together. Speaking of family, it's always nice to have Kim Katola back on. Nice segue, Bill. Uh, she's part of the Faith Radio family and has, uh, of course, you remember Cradle My Heart, and she's written a book and was a um, longtime show host here at Faith Radio. Always glad to have her back. She's with us today on the studio line. Kim, welcome.
1: Hey, Bill. Nice to talk with you
0: today. Thank you so much. All right. There's all kinds of uh, interesting news that have popped up as a result of the election. Maybe we can start with uh, the election results. And there was a number of women uh, who are anti-abortion advocates that got reelected.
1: Well, yeah. In fact, so the pro-life Republican women, that's really it's it is a story that's kind of gotten buried in all of the other election chaos. But if uh, the number of pro-life Republican women in the House of Representatives will more than double next year. So at least 14 pro-life women have won House races. And in seven cases, they flipped Democrat held seats. So that's that's really outstanding. And I think it's again, it's you know, some very, very good news, and I think it gives us a much better reading on where the American public stands on the pro-life issue than uh, some of the other election results might point to.
0: Yeah, and it would feel like a repudiation of some of the abortion extremism that we've been seeing lately the last several years.
1: I think so, and I think, you know, I love the fact that these are women who are going to be taking over these leadership positions because, um, you know, I, I don't ever buy into the rhetoric and the intellectual dodge that says, oh, men can't have an opinion on this. Um, and I think that's just one more way that abortion dehumanizes everybody that it touches, you know, men, men suddenly can't have an opinion, even though they're part of, <laughs>
0: yeah, indeed, indeed. And <laughs> on, no. <laughs> yeah, on the other side of that, that coin, a, uh, an an abortion advocate, uh, Wendy Davis, I think she uh, did not get reelected in in the state of Texas.
1: Right. So her brand is abortion Barbie, which she has tried <laughs> to distance herself from. But I think Eric Erickson gave her that uh, handle mm-hmm. after she filibustered in her, you know, stylish pink sneakers. Yes. In in Texas, when they were trying to pass legislation against late term abortions and she was successful in that moment but ever since then she really has not been able to get any traction and i think again it indicates that oh you know there are, she's very attractive and she's you know very um oh i don't know she appeals to to uh people who you know she's one of the cool kids mm-hmm. okay <laughs> tom hanks contributed to her a lot of the, you know um Hollywood types. Fifty million was poured into her campaign, and um, she she raked in forty million. And you know she's got donors with names like Willie Nelson and Barbara Streisand and uh, uh, Jennifer Garner, Mm -hmm. and then eight million. Poured into her congressional campaign nearly double the amount that her victorious opponent raised. She was chosen by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee as part of their Red to Blue program, which directs their resources and donors and everything. You know, she was one of their stars. She was going to be um, a standard bearer, but no, she was not reelected because. She, even though she doesn't talk about being, you know, that filibuster on her campaign website, she doesn't. She's trying to distance herself from that. In fact, if she even mentions it in her bio, Bill, she talks about, oh, her work on behalf of Texas women's health care, right? Mm-hmm. She's her fight for Texas women's health care. But it wasn't lost on the voters that she has had to downplay her career-defining issue that she has made millions raising money for. Um, as she's campaigning in conservative districts. So uh, small towns around San Antonio and Austin, you know, Austin, of course, is a liberal enclave because of the university there. Mm-hmm. But, but as we're seeing everywhere else, you know, any place where liberals aren't enclaving themselves, <laughs> the rest of the United States has a very uh, sober, compassionate and um, godly view Toward protecting unborn life, and so yeah, she uh, she did not fare well in her race in Texas, and I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, indeed. All right, Kim, let's uh, head to Louisiana and uh, Amendment One. What can you teach us? Tell us about that.
1: So Louisiana is joined a number of states. I think there are maybe seventeen now that have such laws um, on their books, which state that there is no right in the Louisiana Constitution for abortion. And that there is no uh, provision for Louisiana taxpayers to pay for abortion. And so, what this means is that, um, you know, someone will have to, I guess, t- take up a case, right, to try to prove whether or not that's constitutional. But the voters approved that measure, amending Louisiana's state constitution explicitly to say that it does not include any right to abortion or abortion funding. Um, I think West Virginia passed such an amendment in 2018. Uh, Alabama and Tennessee have amended their constitutions. And these moves are meant as preparation bill if Roe v. Wade is overturned or if it uh, is changed in some way uh, so that at a federal level, abortion is no longer um, enshrined in any sort of a ruling from the Supreme Court because it was a ruling. it wasn't it's never been a law, Roe v. Wade. Um, and President Trump in 2016 said, look, this should not never have been decided on a federal level. It would be go, it would go back to the states, which is an appropriate thing for a president and a presidential candidate to say. And I think we'd have a lot less contention around the issue if uh, abortion were decided state by state because, you know, voters could decide such matters on on the local and regional level uh, as it always was the case before Roe v. Wade. Of course, abortion rights advocates say, well, that's not fair because if it's legal in your state, but I have to travel across state lines – uh, because it's not legal in my state. It puts an undue burden on women and limits abortion access, which efe- effectively limits it. There are a lot of, you know, uh, there's a framework, there's a whole framework of argumentation against it. But Louisiana is ready if Roe v. Wade is in some way changed. And so um, they also have a trigger law in place, which would immediately ban abortion in the state in case Roe v. Wade is overturned. And uh, it, the trigger laws. is, basically would say that you may not uh, perform an abortion or procure one or have one unless the uh, mother's life is, her physical health is threatened.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's good to know. All right, let's uh, head over to Colorado where things got a little bit worse over there.
1: Well, Colorado is uh, an abortion. It's, Colorado is one of seven states in addition to the district of Columbia that don't place a gestational limit on abortion access. And it's important to know that, Bill, whenever anyone tells you that abortion is not legal through all nine months of pregnancy, Colorado is one of the places where it is. There is no gestational limit on abortion access in Colorado. Uh, And so every state on Colorado's eastern border bans abortion after 20 weeks. Most others in the region have banned abortion performed after fetal viability, which again is 22 weeks or so. Uh, so uh, Colorado remains a haven for people from other states making the decision to terminate after 22 weeks, and the voters decided that that's what they want. That's what they want their state to be in Colorado, and that that law will, uh, will go forward. Uh, nothing changed in this, but in this case, the results um, – the voters defeated a ballot initiative that would have banned abortions performed after the twenty-two mark, uh, twenty-two week mark of pregnancy.
0: Hmm. Boy, so you've got a couple of initiatives on the ballots and Colorado and Louisiana. Really did deliver opposite results, didn't they?
1: Yeah, they really did. And I don't know, Bill. I mean, it's sort of like uh, this: the uh, the overall election. We have it. It seems we have two Americas. It seems we have very, very different visions for what our country should stand for and what our country should uphold and fight for. And for me, you know, this decision in Colorado, the the justification that abortion rights advocates again will put forward for this is that it's extremely rare. It's 1.3% of U.S. abortions that happen after the 21-week mark. Um, and but, but that still amounts to almost twenty thousand pregnancies, almost twenty thousand children every year. Mm-hmm. You know, it would say one point three percent sounds like mm, not much, but when you start talking about the number of lives that are involved, and again, they will argue that this is because of fetal abnormalities, because of some you know life threatening condition uh, to the child, um, and you know that that they're always medically advised, but. There's no restriction that requires that, so, so they may or they may not be. And uh, for, for those who argue that you know it's a tragedy for a woman to have to face such a devastating diagnosis, of course I would agree, but the research is clear, Bill, that those families and those women and mothers who decide to allow a pregnancy to take its course and to say goodbye to their children, have much better outcomes on almost every measure and certainly on mental health measures, because at least they gave the child every fighting chance. Those are the types of statements you hear from these mothers. You know, I didn't want to be the one, you know, if the Lord decided that this child was not to have a lifespan longer than nine lives in the case of nine, excuse me, nine hours in the case of one mother that I know of right? Well, then that is, I I leave that decision in God's hands, but I would never take it into my own hands to decide because of course, doctors can be wrong on these diagnoses and they have been wrong. Mm -hmm. There are many families, right? That will tell you those stories. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand the arguments and I understand the reasoning, but I think that it's, um, we have to. We have to trust. <laughs> First of all, we have to trust the science, which says that uh, from conception forward, the human embryo is a st- distinct, living, and whole human being. And I want every chance, Bill, when I have a poor prognosis and a poor diagnosis, I don't want someone to come in and say, "Bad diagnosis. Time to end your life now." Yeah. You know. Uh, and yet, in the case of these children before they're born, this is the way that we're writing the rules. And I think its I've I've been seeing some commentators saying that this is America's first postmodern election, you know, and the upside may be that more people will turn to uh, God, turn to the Bible, turn to some source of objective truth so that we're not just truly, you know, blown around by every wave of public opinion. Yeah. Because I think that's a lot of how abortion policy has been dictated in recent years, just mm-hmm. waves of public opinion.
0: Kim, okay, let me take a little break. Kim Cattola is my guest, and of course, you know, Cradle My Heart, and it's her book, and you can go to cradlemyheart.org if you want to uh, find God's love after abortion and get uh, support. She's a brilliant writer and has an incredible heart for uh, women who have gone through that very situation. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. Back with Kim Catola from CradleMyHeart.org, talking about some of the uh, news that's come out of the elections and regarding pro-life issues. But also, Kim, I'm curious now as to what is going on. Anything in the Supreme Court? And now that we've got there's a six to three um, conservative majority in the Supreme Court. Uh, how long do you think it's going to be before the the first challenge to Roe is uh, before them,
1: Well, I, I don't know. And I think, you know, my friends in the legal world, because believe me, it's not my expertise, <laughs> tell me that what would have to happen is the Supreme Court doesn't overturn former rulings. What would have to happen, Bill, is that some new case would have to come
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that, you know, a, a new precedent could be established, as I understand it. And please, everybody, tell Bill if I'm wrong about this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. So, what about the? uh... So,
1: so, but, but, in other words, the cases that uh, you know that are being brought, um, continue to be brought, especially by states that want to restrict abortion in their states. They're the case. That could be heard soon. It was delayed, I think, a week or two ago, uh, in Mississippi. So Mississippi had a law in 2018 that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And so um, I don't know if it was because of the transition with Judge Barrett, um, but anyway, uh, they uh, they may be hearing that case today. It was kind of unclear as I was trying to research that. But um, Mississippi's law is not a flat prohibition on all pre-viability abortions. It only prohibits abortions in the second trimester after 15 weeks. Um, and so, uh, you know, are our, our restrictions constitutional is a question that's before the court as well. And that was decided in 1993 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But again, there, you know, the the legal complexities um are being argued on both sides and you know, from every direction. And so yeah, I'm you know, I, I'm not sure all of the cases that are being possibly discussed, but of course if the takes up the affordable affordable care act there is contraception and abortion provision there. I mean I think every Democrat Runs on a platform of, you know, rolling back the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal money to be spent on abortion. I think Biden said when he reversed himself back in June um, of last year or this year that, uh, you know, whether or not you can have a uh, an abortion shouldn't depend on your zip code. So they want states to pay through abortions through Medicaid, as some states do now in California, for example. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't know all the cases that are there, but I know <laughs> we we all need to pray about it, Bill. Because, you know, just thinking about the the late term abortion, I mean, I think that you know one of the things that that we really need to understand about this is that in those who those who are in favor of abortion rights have really been sold this idea that it has to do with economic opportunities for women and reproductive justice, right? And, I mean, all of these arguments are based on a fallacy, which is that the unborn child is not fully human, and there's no evidence of that scientifically, right? And so uh, we cannot allow uh, the heartstrings to be tugged uh, thinking about difficulties for women while leaving our hearts completely hardened to the demise of the lives of the children. And I think that, um, I don't know. I don't know how we reconcile. I don't know how we find a common ground. And um, I wish I did, Bill. I really wish I did, because I think that in the end, it's our hearts that are going to be deciding where our nation goes with this.
0: Mm -hmm. And the more and more science that comes out validating what we know to be true from God's word that... This baby is knit together in the mother's womb. So we know that life begins at conception. And when we see more and more scientific evidence and viability, I don't know how we don't get more people. And I think there's a a group of younger people today that are standing up for for pro-life that uh, are surprising us a little bit.
1: Yeah, there are, and and that's unfolding again in this kind of you know very divided way, um, with the pro-abortion generation, you know, and it's women it's women baby boomers and um, you know Gen Xers who are saying that I mean I, I think that would tend to be neutral to against abortion generationally, very broadly speaking. Uh, strictly from a, you know, a secular point of view, um, this generation has had arguments made by those women from Gen X and boomers who are abortion rights advocates that it should not be uh, a cause for shame, that there should be no stigma, that it should be uh, viewed as a net societal good that it should be pro—people should proudly pro, pro, proclaim that they are pro-abortion—and we're seeing the fruit of that. You know, I just speaking with a friend in the pregnancy help community who said it's getting more and more difficult to appeal to the younger women's hearts to have a heart for their unborn children, because there—if if all stigma is removed, Bill, really, what hope do young women who? don't have a strong moral compass who don't have the facts about fetal development and the complete humanity of their children from the very beginning what hope do they have if all stigma is removed
0: you yeah you've made a wonderful point and that's that's a concern and um, it's so troubling to hear this um, because that's so true kim
1: yeah and i'm not sure what the answer is other than you know i mean we we all have to support the pregnancy help community. They are doing the work in the front lines, having these conversations with the young women who are abortion minded or abortion vulnerable, mm-hmm. you know, and helping those who just may not have the means, even if they don't want an abortion, but they don't see how they can carry the pregnancy forward. Um, truly, truly heroic, life-saving work that's happening in the pregnancy help centers. And we all need to be helping them as yeah. they do that work.
0: Kim, there's just a couple of minutes left, but I know there's a listener who might be finding themselves in a situation where there's a pregnancy that's uh, maybe they're not sure about. Maybe there's a person with a a granddaughter that became pregnant and we're looking for, you know, words of encouragement and obviously lots of prayer, but any, uh, any words for listeners?
1: Well, I think that if you are, if you have a chance to influence such a person, you know, your job, is to lower the fear and raise the hope, mm. because so much of you know uh, the abortion decision is driven by fear. And uh, when I say, you know that e- economic opportunities are actually being touted by abortion rights advocates these days. you know ab- abortion gives women eco- economic opportunities. It empowers them for their future. You know they're trying to address the fear with that positive spin. But you know the the young woman who's frightened says, "I can't get a job if I have to raise a baby you know i i, I my economic future is at risk if I can't continue my education. Mm-hmm. You know these are huge fears, and they're valid fears. I can't just dismiss you know economics over human lives, even though of course we should have right. <laughs> we, we should it shouldn't be something we have to weigh, yeah but if you can give hope, if you can give hope. That you'll come alongside and there are others who will come alongside and that the pregnancy, you know, if parenting is mm-hmm. absolutely not possible, then adoption is a choice everyone yeah. can live with. Just lower Amen. those fears and raise that Amen.
0: hope. Kim, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I appreciate you very much. You too, Bill. All right. Kim Katol has been my guest. We'll take a short break. We'll be back with Dr. Tim Muehlhoff. All right, we are back. I'm excited to uh, bring Dr. Tim Muhlhoff onto the program. He's got a new book coming out in December called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. I would imagine many of us sit uh, and think that the people sitting around us in church share our beliefs. But what happens when some of your personal convictions are questioned or contested by other believers? And then all of a sudden, everything kind of changes quickly. And you might feel attacked, you might feel like uh, other Christians are not agreeing with your convictions, and you're not, ex- you know, you, it's not just a difference of opinion, it's almost like, I thought we had this unspoken sort of understanding that this is what we all think and believe. And so, thank goodness Tim and his uh, writing partner, Dr. Uh, Rick Langer, have put together this book again, called Winsome Conviction, and I can't wait to talk to Tim. Tim, welcome to the show.
3: Uh, it's great to be back, Bill.
0: Yeah, this is like the hottest topic out there right now.
3: <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Business is good for the book. Yeah, it's I mean, good.
0: I want to say nothing. You just talk until 5 o'clock. That'd be good. <laughs> I mean, it's clearly. Now,
3: let me say... oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead.
0: I mean it's clearly I was,
3: say, <laughs> I was gonna say that yeah, I was gonna say that it's not just us who think this is an important topic. The uh, Civility Project has been doing a survey for twenty years asking Americans to comment on civility yeah. and they just came out with two thousand nineteen. And so get a load of this. In a time in which we don't agree about anything, ninety eight percent of Americans state that incivility is a serious problem, while sixty eight percent agree it's reached crisis levels.
0: Wow. Okay, so you think it's hard to, you know, have conflicting convictions with people outside of the church? Sure, that's difficult. That can be challenging. But when it starts to happen within the church, it even gets uglier, doesn't
3: it? Oh, it can, because we add the complicating element of this is what the Bible says. Right. So uh, my view is biblical. And I've rooted it in what Jesus says in the New Testament. And thus, it, it, you're not only wrong about this issue, you're unbiblical. And that's a pretty strong accusation to level against a fellow Christ follower.
0: Mm-hmm. Tim, can't we look at the New Testament and see quarreling all over it, though?
3: Oh, yes. The New Ter- New Testament church wrestled with this deeply. Um Uh, In speaking to the church at Corinth, he says, I I hear that there's quarrels uh, among you, that you're taking each other to court. (laughs) And and he says, this really ought not to be the case. And so Paul, everywhere, doesn't just talk about content, Bill. He talks about the relational level of communication. He talks about the fact that how you say it is just as important as what you say in New Testament language, particularly Apostle Paul.
0: So it seems, uh, Tim, that there's more of a tendency with social media and the cancel culture that if you don't agree with somebody, you might just, you know, pick up your ball and go home, and go. That's now, it.
3: Go back to. Yep, absolutely. Go back to that survey. Eighty-seven percent of Americans no longer feel safe in public places sharing their opinion. That, so, that, Bill, I, we've got to get away from this at, at a time in which. As Americans, we need to talk about issues of race, sexuality, gender. Um, We have lost the ability, honestly, to talk to each other. And again, to go back to the debate that we all watched, and almost universally, uh, all Americans said that debate, that was not good. That that was really hard to watch. And uh, I think we can see a groundswell, a little bit, of Americans looking at that debate and saying, we've got to do better. That that just isn't going to work. If our two top leaders literally cannot talk to each other, then we've got to do better. And here's where I think the church has a great opportunity to be a model for that.
0: Oh, Tim, you must say more because I, love, what, I yes. love where you're going with this.
3: Yeah, so here's what I say to my students. I say to my students two things. Jesus says, my followers will be known for this. And then here's the second most important thing I'm ever going to say. And I said to my students, okay, fill in the blanks. What is it that will identify believers, Christ followers, and then what's the second most important thing Jesus ever said? The first one is, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said the peacemakers, they will be known as the sons of God. And then second, the second most important thing Jesus ever said is love your neighbor as yourself. But then I say to my students, what was the first? And they all say, love the Lord with God with your heart, mind, and soul. And then I say, Bill, now notice how he introduced the second. He said the second is just like the first, which means how do we practically love God? We love him by loving our neighbors. So I think today we need to be peacemakers. That's what needs to identify the American church at a time when 98% of Americans say incivility is a serious problem. We step in and we say, are we people of conviction? Absolutely, but the way we share our convictions is qualitatively different from what you just watched in that debate. Mm -hmm. We have certain promises that we make to non-Christians and we make to each other within the church that we don't break these promises. And we could go to a lot of places to see what these promises are. But just for a second, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 31. Paul says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Boy, don't miss that. In three different ways, he identifies wrath, anger, and malice. And then he says, "I want you to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God and Christ has forgiven you." So, guess what? That's the relational level. And if we adopt that, and the world sees that we are convicted people, uh, but the way we share is one of compassion, civility, empathy, sympathy, then I think not only do we, we win the applause of the Holy Spirit, but then I start—we start to become countercultural. And people will start to listen to us
0: mm-hmm. So Tim, maybe address listeners that watched the debate and felt just completely tainted and soiled by the whole thing, where they're just full of maybe some anger and some and some horribly unpleasant feelings and and then move them to the place where they can uh, be peacemakers
3: uh, boy, that's really uh, so that's a complex issue. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean you can't be prophetic. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean that, oh, I don't have any opinions on this, and I never say hard things. Right, yeah. Right. So here's my one—I want to get your opinion on this, Bill. Tell me if you—and uh, maybe it's pie in the sky, and it'll never work. And the fact that President Trump is now, along with his wife, uh, COVID-positive, there probably won't be any more debates, right? So, but let's say there was going to be another debate. What do you think about the idea of a nationwide boycott of the debates? Like (laughs) no one watches them. Mm. No one watches them. And the message has been sent, right? You don't need to change your vote for president, right? But nobody watches the debate. I wonder how that would register. I wonder if the two candidates and the two parties would say, wow, that's interesting Mm -hmm. that America just spoke. Both Democrats and Republicans just spoke loud and clear. We're not watching this. It would have been beautiful, Bill, if there would have been a third debate, because then guess what? We would come back for the third debate and turn it off immediately if we get the the first debate. Mm -hmm. So when I say peacemakers, Bill, I don't mean that we can't ever, as Paul says, speak truth, but we do it in love. Uh, So here's what I would say to the people who are deeply discouraged. First, I would say I'm deeply discouraged along with them. Um, Second, we need to understand that God's Holy Spirit can speak to uh, both candidates, uh, can convict them. Uh, We need to pray that there'd be people around these two candidates that would say to them, listen, we just can't reproduce that first debate. And at the end of the day, God says, don't tire with doing good. So even if it doesn't seem like being a peacemaker does anything, know that the Holy Spirit's watching will affirm you. But I believe the Holy Spirit will use your kindness to turn the hearts of other people. That's what Paul gets at when he says, listen, when your enemy's hungry. I want you to feed him. In doing so, you'll get the Holy Spirit will work upon that person like burning coals, right? So we, th- I think this is a referendum on our faith, though. Is do we believe what Peter says? Don't give an insult for an insult, but give a blessing instead. First Peter mm-hmm. 3 9. Yeah. I think this is a referendum on do we believe in the Holy Spirit?
0: Wow. <laughs>
3: that's I do.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about that one, Tim. That's awesome.
3: Because here's what people say here's what so we are the insult for insult culture. Mm hmm. Deborah, Can- Deborah Tannen called it the argument culture. She wrote a prophetic book about 15 years ago. She's a Georgetown linguist. So, Bill, here, here's, what, here's what we wrestle with. And, again, I was on the debate team in college, Bill. So, listen, I love a good fight. I, I love rolling up the sleeves and going at a person. But, but here's what Peter is saying. And remember, again, he says in a different place, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with all gentleness and respect. So can we stick up for the Christian perspective inside the church and outside it, but do it with gentleness and respect? Well, here's what we say. I won't be talked to like that. You talk to me like that. I'm talking to you like that. You raise your voice to me. I raise my voice to you. You make fun of my candidate. I make fun of your candidate, right? Mm -hmm. So, but, but that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Speak truth in love. And if you can't do the love part, shut up. It's two sides of the same coin. Paul's not making a distinction between just truth-telling or just love-giving. He's saying they are two sides of the same coin. So I think, that, I think the modern church, we need to really step back and say, are, are we any different than the argument culture today? And, wow. and, if, and Bill, if we're different, I want us to name it. All right, how are you different? How are we different? Um, and then I would love to hear uh, how people respond to that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how do we cultivate uh, a better understanding and compassion for the people that we're disagreeing with? Because it seems well, like we I'm get triggered of- really fast.
3: Yeah, and we're primed for that. Psychologists would say we're primed for it, Okay. Like, uh, depending on how much social media you watch, depending on what news program you watch. Um, you, you're primed for anger. So let me tell you one interesting. Uh, let me tell you one interesting thing, Bill, and then I'll jump in with uh, a suggestion. Okay. Um, so I, I, I'm currently writing a different book, and I was looking at a YouTube clip, and I, it just. Uh, so I was busy writing as the YouTube clip ended, and it bled into another clip that I didn't pick, but it just bled into it. You got to shut off autoplay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I need to write that down. So um, this was Ben Shapiro. Okay. He was talking about the, the tragic shooting in Milwaukee. And let me just say this uh, to all Ben Shapiro fans. I I think I agreed with maybe 70% of what he was saying. I, I think he's very articulate. But Bill, the the anger in which he expressed it, the way he demonized liberals, the way he demonized Black Lives Matter movement, it, I just imagine to myself, what if I listen to Ben Shapiro 24-7? What if I listen to him every day? I would approach liberals as if not only they're idiots, but you are absolutely dangerous to this country. So so we got to be careful what we're listening to because that primes us. To have an angry response right away, but, it, but if it's true that we can be primed for an angry response, Bill, then I wonder if we can't be primed for a loving response, right? So mm-hmm. um, we're, we're part of a winsome conviction project. Uh, Biola just started it. It'll run for five years. Uh, we are trying to reintroduce compassion and stability back into our public disagreements. We started a podcast called the Winsome Conviction Podcast. You can find it anywhere you get your podcast. And we did a segment on humanizing thoughts lead to humanizing speech. And so what we did is we flipped a coin, uh, and I got President Trump. He got Vice President Biden. And we went back and researched things that surprised us and humanized both candidates. Now, listen, it doesn't change my vote. But, but learning certain things about Vice President Biden, particularly the tragic death of his son, Bo, and how he carries Bo's rosary with him all the time, how President Trump uh, uh, loved his older brother, Fred, and Fred died of alcohol addiction. That's why President Trump has been so adamant about going after um, the meth. Um, tragedy that we're seeing in our country today so these things just we we went back and forth for the entire podcast okay give me another one there's another one and what it did is it didn't change my vote but it humanized both candidates took them from being a caricature to being a person and i think boy that's a great first step Mm -hmm. these are real life people and we need to remember that
0: yeah great point dr timothy Milhoff is my guest and we're going to take a little break when we come back we're going to continue chatting about his book, which is coming out in December, called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Dr. Tim Mulhoff is my guest. We're chatting about his uh, book, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. You know, I was thinking during the break, Tim, even when you mentioned about Ben Shapiro, um, uh, you know, and you made some comment about, you know, liberals being, uh, what was the word you used, dangerous. I think that was it. Uh, I I know that you already probably have generated thoughts of listeners thinking, well, liberals are dangerous. I mean, uh, the human element to this discussion is that we are all poor, blind, naked, wretched, and in need of a savior. And we should put the cross before everything.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, Are you aware of Tim Keller's excellent piece where he took a look at the uh, Church of Acts and noted what the convictions were and said that he could break those convictions into both Democrat uh, uh, and Republican? Uh, I thought it was a fascinating piece by Tim Keller Uh, which is to say, are Democrats dangerous? Yes, I I would not be naive and saying no, but so are Republicans. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Both parties are dangerous. Um, And both parties don't have a corner on religion. Uh, Either party has strayed from Jesus's kingdom. And so I love what you're saying is, Jesus would say, seek first the kingdom of God. But then, right, we we need to humanize these individuals. And and by the way, let me give kudos to President Trump for a second. So when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, um, I was really nervous. I was like, Mike, oh, please do not attack this woman, right? And he didn't. He, I was very uh, pleased that he said, we lost a giant, a legal giant today, and she was a trailblazer. And I agree with that, even though there are things about Ruth Bader Ginsburg I just flat out disagree. You, you just gotta tip your hat to the woman that she fought battles nobody was fighting, and, and men benefited and women benefited. She was the only woman at Harvard, and um, she was phenomenal. She got unbelievably good grades because mm-hmm. so she fought fights that we step back and just tip our hat to people. And and Bill, that's what's not happening today. We don't tip our hat to each other anymore. Right. We don't. We don't look at Vice President Biden and say. Well done on a lifetime of service to politics. Mm -hmm. Well done that that you've given your life to the betterment of this country. See, we don't start that way. We talk about all the things we disagree with him, and that violates a principle from John Gottman, one of the top relational scholars, uh, who says you need to have a soft startup when you talk to a person, not a harsh startup. So when I'm talking to a person who loves President Trump or loves Vice President Biden, I can't start with where we disagree. That's a hard startup. Mm -hmm. A a, a, a soft startup allows the conversation to continue. And that's what we try to do in our podcast. Here are some things you can look at President Trump. And you can say, my goodness, um, I tip my hat to you on this issue. I mean, how much the man has given—and we talk about his taxes, right? Mm -hmm. But, hey, objectively, that man's given up a ton of earned revenue, and he's not taken the salary uh, that's offered to every president. And so, you know, you just stop and you say, okay, well done. Uh, All right, good, good. And and then think of other things that you can affirm as you move towards disagreement. I think that's one of the ways we can approach these disagreements with Christians and non-Christians.
0: I like that idea, Tim, of a soft startup. That's, um, we'll stick with me. And I was reading some comments that came out by some commentators and, and pundits today, and I found this to be interesting. Uh, Rachel Maddow, of all people, she's very liberal, of course, on MSNBC, and she said, God bless the President and the First Lady. If you pray, please pray for their speedy and complete recovery and for everyone infected. The virus is horrific and merciless. No one would wish its wrath on anyone. Maybe uh, there's an opportunity for a little bit of a, a break in the and more civility.
3: Remember that great um, story that was written? This was World War One trench warfare between the uh, French and the Germans. And uh, they, for Christmas, they called the truce. Yes. And they actually they actually played a week of soccer. Right. <laughs> um, and and but, ate but, together. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a a great story. And by the way, the only way it was broken is that the commanders got nervous and started to rotate people out of the front line. And they rotated new people in who had no context about the soccer playing or the Christmas celebration. That's how they broke the uh, Christmas truce. So we need to forge those times of celebration. See, I, I think this is what we're missing, Bill. And I know this is controversial when I say this, and Christians just don't receive it well but we are American, we are Americans, and then I'm an American Christian, but we're Americans, and we, we need to look at people in our neighborhoods, our communities, we need to say, listen, we're in this together, uh, and yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't expect you to adopt my entire philosophy of Jesus because we're neighbors. I'm gonna give a little, you give a little. I'm gonna compromise, you compromise because we need to make this community work for everybody. right? And and compromise comes from the Latin, the middle way. Hmm. And here's what I get from Christians is, I don't compromise on anything. I do not compromise on my positions on pro-life. I don't compromise on my views of sexuality. I don't compromise on my views on marriage. I don't compromise anything. And what's that gotten us is that we are now in these colonies that have no conversations with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think as Christians, we step up, we say no neighbor love dictates that we find solutions together. And if that means I don't always get my Christian agenda, then I don't always get it. But if we forge these bonds, then maybe down the road I can start to add the Christian agenda. But but we, we just don't do a good job. And I thought COVID could be it, right, Bill? Mm-hmm. You thought COVID might do it, but we politicized that right out of the gates. Republicans yeah. and Democrats both did it, and now it's divisive. It's not bringing us together.
0: Yeah. We just have a couple minutes left, Tim, but um, there's a— there's the difference between absolutes, preferences, and personal convictions. And that's a lot to chew on in a couple of minutes, but I yeah. think you were talking about your absolutes. There's some things I will not bend on, and then there's preferences and there's personal convictions. I think it's important that we, uh, we hold on to the absolutes, but also, you know, like you say, m- make room for discussion with people we don't agree with.
3: Yeah, let me borrow a metaphor from C.S. Lewis we use in the book. Uh, Lewis talked about the hallway of faith. Right? These are things we do not give up on. It is the deity of Jesus, salvation in Christ alone, the resurrection, right? But there's rooms off the hallway. And I think today, Lewis would say, you better believe one room off the hallway is Republican, Democrat, is politics. That's a room off the hallway, right? So don't make your room off the hallway, the hallway. And that's what we wanna do. We wanna say, no, 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 it is wrong to be a Democrat. You must be a Republican and that's part of the hallway. Mm-hmm. And so I think Lewis wanted to keep the hallway, the hallway, which are, those are our absolute truths, And then there are personal convictions. And again, a personal conviction is how do I vote? Uh, we're all pro-life, right? We're all pro-life. But what's, how do you express that? Mm-hmm. Does that mean I have to vote just Republican? Or are there things about the Democratic platform that are pro-life A to Z, not just talking about the unborn? Those are really hard conversations. But we need to have them, but we we got to protect our um, absolutes. Yeah. Uh, hey, can I mention one thing about the book that Please. InterVarsity is doing, yeah. doing a special deal? Yeah. So the book is called Winsome Conviction, and if you go to InterVarsity Press website and put in this code, OFFER21W. So the word OFFER21W, uh, they will give you 30% off a pre-order and ship it to you for free.
0: Nice. Thank you for that offer. Thanks for passing that on. Yeah.
3: So yep. It comes from University Press. So um, if you're interested in the book, Buy a Thousand for Christmas, we would love it. It'd be a great Christmas present. That's awesome.
0: Tim, thank, <laughs> you always make me think. I appreciate you coming on to the show. And do I have it right that y- your book hasn't come out yet, but you're already writing another book?
3: Yeah, first week of December, the book comes up, and I'm already writing another book called um, Giving God Credit, Common Grace,
0: and COVID-19. Awesome. We'll look forward to that discussion, too. Have a great weekend, Tim. God bless you and your family.
3: Right. Thank you, Bill. You, too.
0: Yep. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff has been my guest. And that wraps up our show for the day and for the week. I have to admit, it's been a pretty interesting week. I'll leave you with this thought. And now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. It is time to ring the bell. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.